0: Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, hey, hey. That was interesting. All right. Well, you know what else has been interesting the first couple of weeks of the NBA season? Uh, we Wow, just getting right into it, eh? <laughs> yeah, we got we got no time for small talk, although I did like the hey, hey, hey. Hope all is well with you, Wolfon. I know it is. We talk outside of this program. But uh, yeah, we're a couple weeks into the season, a lot going on. We already uh, hit people with our early season observations last week. So I think, you know, this week, episode 203 of the pod, and I guess episode two or three of this season, I think can be just when we get into the nitty gritty and start talking about what the hell is going on around the league. And so this week, we are going to dive into the team that we think has been the most surprising, the team that we think has been the most disappointing, and the team that uh, I guess we think has been the most impressive. And then we're going to end the show by spending a little bit of time talking about what looks like the best rookie class in a couple decades, I dare say. I mean, it's, it's, and I mean early, I don't mean that they're going to, it's going to be the best draft class in decades. Like as we go forward, I'm just saying in terms of the first couple of weeks and like their immediate impact in the NBA, I haven't seen a crop of rookies like this in a long time since literally the 03 class so we will get into all that i think where we have to start is with the team that's going to end up taking the cake for our most disappointing and that is the boston celtics who are absolutely in shambles right now yes it's early yes it's only a couple weeks into the season but you know if you recall uh when we did our kind of bold prediction stuff and and we were talking about the season first of all i made the bold prediction that a season of turbulence in Boston and a disappointing season of turbulence in Boston would lead to uh, Jalen Brown ending up on the trade block. But even aside from that bold prediction, you know, I mentioned that I thought the way that East kind of mid tier would play out is there'd be five teams jostling in that six to 10 range. And it would be Boston, Chicago, Toronto, New York, and Indiana. And now we're going to talk about the wizards today too. And I think you can definitely make the argument based on the early season that the wizards have played or will play themselves into that mix. And so, if you consider it like a six to eleven race, or maybe that the Wizards overtake the Pacers in that six to ten, the reason I think this could come back to bite the Celtics, even though it is so early, is because if you look at the way their schedule has played out uh, in this early season, their only two wins came on an actually like impressive back to back in Charlotte and and, uh, and Houston, but their five losses have come to the Wizards twice, to the Knicks to the Raptors, and to the Bulls. And so if the season were to kind of shake out the way I originally saw it going with all those teams bunched in that 6-10, to to 6-11 range, yeah, it's early. You don't want to panic a couple weeks into the season. You've also dropped five games against the teams I think they're going to be jostling with in that mix. And yeah, that can come by. Like, the fact that it's the first two weeks of the season doesn't mean those losses mean any less than they would if they occurred in March or April. Like, They have put themselves behind the eight ball here based on who they've lost to. And then, you know, before I hand the mic over to you, just to kind of recap for our audience, if they're not already aware, even just kind of the way things have been going lately. Their fifth loss was they blew a 14 point lead at home in the fourth quarter to the Bulls by being outscored by 28 points in the fourth quarter, not grabbing a single defensive rebound in the fourth quarter. Having Marcus Smart after the game say that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum need to pass the ball more now, I will say, if you read the full quote, and I can read the entire quote for you if you want, it's not as bad as it seems what he actually said was, every team knows we're trying to go to Jason and Jalen, every team is programmed and studies to stop Jason and Jalen. Everybody's scouting report is make those guys try to pass the ball. They don't want to pass the ball. That's something they're going to learn. They're still learning and we're proud of the progress they're making, but they're going to have to make another step and find ways to not only create for themselves, but create for others. So it's not as bad as the original soundbite sounded, but it is still Marcus Smart saying those guys get to pass more. Uh, You had new coach Adoka last week saying that Jalen, the contrast in Jalen Brown's early season performances was quote unquote mind boggling. Yes, it's early. They can write the ship, but this is a very, very chaotic start to the Boston Celtics season. So Wolfon, take it away. What are your thoughts?
1: I think that the, the way, obviously, that that game against the Bulls ended and then the quotes that came out afterwards is probably making it seem worse than it actually is. And I'm not saying it's not bad and that there aren't red flags or things to be legitimately concerned about, but... Look, you know, two of their losses were overtime games. I know one of their wins was also an overtime win, but those two games easily could have flipped the other way and they could be four and three. And it's like, are we really talking about this if that's the case? That said, yeah, there are there are some issues with this roster. And, you know, to, to Marcus Smart's point, to me, Tatum has kind of plateaued as a playmaker. And you know, on top, like Tatum has limitations outside of that. Like he he doesn't get to the rim or the free throw line very often. He's probably over-reliant on his sidestep three and just various other contested pull-up jumpers. But I think the stage that he's plateaued at as a playmaker is like, he's a good passer when he has the ball and is facing a kind of Tilted or a collapsed defense, you know, whether that's because he's caught the ball on the move and somebody else has created an advantage for him or just because he has drawn two to the ball, whether, you know, th- by making a, a move or just because of the threat of his pull up jumper. I, I just don't think, like, he's not a particularly proactive passer. I wouldn't say that he has great vision. And there are a number of times, like, pretty much every game where, like, a Celtics big man will have a mismatch underneath the rim and and Tatum just won't really take advantage of it. He won't hit the big man underneath. All that is like fine for a wing, right? Like I I don't, I don't think that would necessarily be an issue if the Celtics roster wasn't asking for Tatum to be more than that. And I think it's been easy, I guess, to overlook those limitations in the past because of of Tatum's incredible shot making. And also, you know, because his weak side defense has been really, really disruptive. But the fact is he's not making shots right now um his defense has kind of been lackluster and inattentive to be honest but but i think maybe more than that it's just like the guard play in boston has gotten worse at least in terms of off the dribble creation it's gotten worse it, like kemba was sort of supposed to be that guy for them and and very much looked like that guy for his first couple months in boston before injury has kind of ruined him but it's like okay if if tatum's not going to be your sort of primary creator initiator then who is it going to be like And Smart himself in that post-game availability mentioned like his own playmaking abilities. And Smart is a good passer. But he's also not like because of his lack of threat level as a pull-up shooter, because he's not like super explosive going downhill, like he's not really tilting a defense. So you can put him in pick and roll and he can make solid productive passes, but I still don't think that's enough to get the Celtics into like a really good offensive flow to get to the point where I think you want Tatum to be operating more within the flow of the offense, right? Like he looks so much better to me when he is catching the ball on the move, coming off of screens, off of curls, cuts from up top. I think you would like for him to be in a role that skews a little bit more toward finishing than initiating. But I don't know, that's, that's not the situation the Celtics are in right now. And, and I think it's pretty much the same for Jalen Brown, right? Who has come a long way as a playmaker, but still isn't the guy that you necessarily want initiating your offense or, or getting other people involved. I guess I, I will also say that a lot of this isn't their fault. And Tatum especially, I feel like a lot of the time he will draw two or even three guys to the ball and he'll make the right read. And pass the ball and kickstart a swing, swing sequence. And then someone like Schroeder or or Smart or Jason Richardson will just like brick an open shot at the end of that chain of passes. And like, you know, for for everything I just said about how not totally off base that Smart criticism was. (laughs) And look, I've been a big fan of Marcus Smart's game for a long time, and I know his contributions go way beyond scoring. And I know that he's kind of the vocal leader of the team and he speaks with some measure of authority, but come on, dude, like you're going to say that shit when you're shooting 31% from two and 28% from three on the season. Yeah, I I will say, I think at the time
0: he made the comment, well, it still holds because they haven't played a game since he made the comment, but... Is he uh, is he shooting better from three than Tatum is right now? And I know obviously Tatum's a better three point shooter. We know this, but I do think that is funny because people were saying that like Smart's making those comments and like he you know he, he's a terrible shooter. But it's like I think through seven games he might have a higher three point percentage than Jason Tatum.
1: Yeah, which is okay. just a, just a, like. A-
0: But look at how those three-point shots are happening. 100%. Again, Tatum is the better shooter. He's going to have a far better percentage by the time the year's over, and he's taking tougher shots. But I did find some comedy in
1: that. There is some comedy in that, but there's also some comedy in the fact that, like, you know, there was a possession late in the fourth quarter of that meltdown, and the game was already slipping away at this point, but it wasn't over by any means. I think the Bulls were up nine with, like, two and a half minutes left. And Tatum made a drive from the wing on Lonzo. Smart's man, I think it was DeRozan was covering Smart up top. He came down to like hard double Tatum on the drive. And Tatum like power stepped through to split the double team and then made a backhand wraparound pass to Smart. Wide open straightaway three. And I'm not saying that would have changed the outcome of the game, but like that could have been a big momentum swing at that point when the the Celtics really needed a bucket and Tatum created all of it himself Mm -hmm. and Smart just clanked it. And it's, and I don't know, maybe, maybe like Smart still has enough clout in that locker room and and him and Tatum and Brown are all on the same page to the point that he can say stuff like that and they're going to take it in stride and be fine with it. And it's not going to cause any, any additional friction. But I I thought that was a bit rich coming from him because yeah, Smart's great in his way, but it's not like he's playing out of his mind right now. You know, he's contributed to their struggles at the offensive end for sure. I agree with all that. What I'd say is
0: it's just um, it's one of many, I guess, symptoms of a greater disease here. And that like is that like, they're in shambles all over the place. You know, like a lot of attention is being paid right now to um, the offensive side and like Tatum and Brown not passing or, or whatever, Marcus Smart yeah, and the rest but of them. they're like 27th players. in defense also. It, that, exactly. They're a bottom five defensive team right now. And if you watch that collapse against the Bulls, like, yes, is scoring nine or 11 points or whatever they scored in that quarter. Is that a problem when you score eleven points for? Of course, that's an offensive problem. Guess what? They gave up thirty-nine too, and they didn't grab a single defensive rebound in the fourth quarter of an NBA game. Do you know how hard that is to do at any level in basketball? I know you do, but like, the ball can just take a bad bounce off the rim and land in your freaking hands if you're in the right defense. Like to me, that is a sign of not just bad luck, but like no defensive want on the glass, like no probably not good box outs, like not a good position. It's everything. It's a focus
1: thing. And if you watch that quarter... Okay, but also, you know, the, I think the Bulls missed three shots in that fourth quarter. Was,
0: yes, that obviously has a lot to do with it. But what I was gonna say is it all comes back to just the lack of defensive want they had in that quarter. Like you can go back and watch that quarter. The transition defense was abysmal, like absolutely abysmal. No one was stopping anyone on the... Like Josh Richardson wasn't holding anyone at the point of attack. Like there was nothing about that quarter or the Celtics season so far where you can point and say like okay here is some good stuff just like on both sides of the ball it's a lot of trash and on the defensive side it's very concerning how just disinterested this team looks because the news flash here for like Tatum, Brown, Smart, maybe any of the holdovers from previous better Celtics teams is they're not that good anymore. They're not good enough to Coast here and there and just like get by on their talent. Like they have some between Tatum and Brown, yeah, they have some great talent at the top of the roster, but like top to bottom, this team, there's a reason we were both in agreement that they were probably in that mid tier of the East and might be fighting to avoid the play in because they're not good enough to just coast. And maybe the first couple of weeks of the season will be an eye opener for them. But if not, like they could be in trouble because like things, like I said, they're in shambles right now on both ends of the court. And I think the defensive side is kind of being lost in the shuffle here because everyone's talking about Tatum and Brown and the offense and Marcus smarts comments.
1: I will say, and a lot of people have pointed this out, you know, Tatum just hasn't really been the same guy since he got COVID last year. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you may remember him talking toward the end of the last season about how he didn't have his wind back. And I can't remember what he said. Actually, did you say he was like taking an inhaler.
0: He was. And Jalen Brown uh, was talking Last week, when, when they were talking about the contrast in his performances, and he agreed with Coach Udoga that he was also bo- mind-boggled by it, but he also did say he didn't think he was back
1: to 100% from his uh, bout with COVID either. So yeah, I think we should definitely take that into 100%. account, and okay, is is that going to be a persistent issue, or are they eventually going to get their win back? I can't answer that question, obviously, yeah. and... It's really sad, honestly, to have their careers potentially, and obviously, like the Celtics' season being way secondary to that. But to have all that hinging on this medical question—that not only do we not have the answers to it, but like a lot of medical professionals don't have the answer to it right now, because like, mm-hmm. there's not enough data about long COVID and you know what the the long-term ramifications of it can be. So that's just a tough part of this that that we shouldn't totally talk around. But I, what I'll say about the Celtics' defense is. I don't watch it and think that there's a whole lot of bad defensive process stuff going on necessarily. I think the stuff that they've done well at the defensive end in the past, a lot of it is still there. You know, like the scram switching, which I feel like they've been better at than pretty much any team. I think they still do that really effectively. Like that's been a constant basically throughout the, the smart Yeah, remind, remind our audience era. what scram switching is. So it's basically just like if you switch, which, which the Celtics do a lot, and then... Because of that switch, you have a matchup that you don't particularly like. There's just a secondary switch where you kick that guy out of the matchup. Um, Somebody else will come over and grab him, and they'll exchange assignments before the offense has a chance to basically exploit that mismatch. The Celtics do that a lot. They do it really well. You know, they're also smart about pre-switching, which is basically just like to keep their bigs out of compromising screening actions.
0: And Horford's been great, by the way. That, that's Horford's the kind of, been really good. Like, and,
1: and it's like you know he's been their I most think,
0: consistent two-way player through the first couple sure. weeks of the season.
1: Well, probably. And and like having him back and having him obviously know those defensive principles from his time with Boston before, and having that kind of defensive synergy with guys like Smart and Brown and Tatum, I think has been helpful. And look, the Celtics switch a lot, and as a result, no team in the league actually forces opponents to play a higher share of its offensive possessions in isolation, which typically is a good thing. Isos aren't generally efficient play types. Like if you can force opponents to play a lot of one-on-one, that's not bad defensive process. Part of the problem right now is just, you know, a lot of those possessions are just ending with guys getting beat and getting scored on. And, you know, their help is slow to react. So that's part of it. And, And I'll say like Robert Williams, who I was high on coming into the season, for all his physical gifts and, and all the flashes of defensive brilliance that he does show, he just still makes a lot of bad reads or bad gambles that leave him out of position defending pick and roll, like jumping up on the wrong side of the screen or over committing to the ball handler. Like I'm, I'm still pretty high on him long term, but for now, I don't know that he can anchor a good defense. And that's sort of been part of the issue as well.
0: All right, before we jump to the next team we're going to talk about, the one question I want to ask you is, so again, we both had them in that mid-tier like play-in slash playoff range coming into the year. If I had to have assigned a number to them coming into the season, I would have said I see them as seventh. I don't know where your exact number would have been, but what I would ask you is this. Based on your preseason and like preconceived notions of what you thought this team would be, combined with what you've seen through only two weeks, small sample size tier, all that, Has your opinion of where you think this team will finish in the East changed at all? Do you still think the things you thought about them coming into the year will end up kind of holding water over the course of a long season? So yeah, my two questions would be, do you think, will they finish as good as you thought they would? And maybe a bigger question is, based on what you've seen, do you think this is an Eastern Conference playoff team? By the end of it, regardless of whether it's sixth or they win a couple playing games, do you think the Boston Celtics will be in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year?
1: It's just, it's so hard to answer for, for the, for the COVID reason that I mentioned, you know what I mean? Like it, I would definitely expect Tatum to be better than he's been, but you know, how much better? And I can't say with any reasonable assurance, that like, he's just going to get back to being the guy that he was before he got sick. Like it's, it's tough. I, I will say no, just because what I've seen from them so far is, is definitely kind of troubling. I do think eventually like the defense is going to rebound, like they, they'll be better than they've been at that end of the floor. Not that they are not flawed. like I heard a lot of people saying before the season started that they could be a top five defense, which I never Mm, saw them being that good anyway. But I definitely think that they're going to creep a lot closer to like league average at that end of the floor than they've been so far. And I do think the offense will be better because I just think they'll shoot the ball better than they have so far. So I definitely see them still being in the play-in mix. But... I don't know. There's a lot of good teams in the East, man. Mm -hmm. Like the Knicks look better than I thought they would. And you know, the bulls, like we're, we're, we're talking about the Celtics meltdown. Like it's all, you know, it's all Boston's fault, but you know, Chicago helped make that happen. And Chicago's legit. Yeah. You know, Levine
0: Levine single-handedly outscored Boston in that quarter. DeRozan did what DeRozan does, just closed them the hell out to cap a masterful performance. DeMar DeRozan has been great for that team. You know, the usual defensive concerns aside, we know what that is, but like, offensively DeMar DeRozan has just been what DeMar DeRozan like he's he does what he does man and it's so cool to watch and um like it's tough to pick who's been their best player I know ceiling wise it's still Levine but in terms of just raw performance through a couple weeks I think you could argue DeRozan's been the best player on this six and one team
1: I would say it's been Levine I, I think especially because he's defending better than he ever has before like to me He's a whole lot closer to being like at worst a defensive neutral than he is yeah. to being a liability, like he's really competing um he's way more alert as a help guy like he's come so far at that end of the floor, and I just love everything I've seen from Caruso, too, man. I know it's, yeah. it's super early and a lot can happen, but I feel like you know as long as he doesn't get hurt and like keeps playing the number of minutes that he's been playing, this should be the year that he cracks an all defensive team yeah, I don't disagree with that. So yeah, Chicago, like, and they would have been in the mix. Like we're going to talk about the team we've been most impressed with. They would have been in the mix, uh, but we talked a lot about them last week. But I I will just say they're really good. And top to bottom, the East is tough, man. So so to pick Boston to finish in the top eight right now with the way that they're playing, I don't know that I could do that. So I'll say they're a playing team, but not necessarily a playoff team.
0: When we wrote our 10 observations from the first 10 days of the season post last week that you can find on the score app, one of my observations, as you know, is, you know, I titled at "Leastern conference no more. And it was the fact that not only is the East just straight up better than it's been in a long time, but this is probably the first time in like a quarter century that you can say with some like good confidence that this season, the East is better than the West. And I don't want to just base it off the early season numbers, but the early season numbers are also helping back it up. Now I haven't checked the updated figures since we put that up on Saturday, but going into the weekend through like 10 or 11 days of the season, the East was nine and four in interconference play and five of the top six top, uh, net rating teams and nine of the top 13 were East teams. The East is legit. Now that kind of dominance might not last all season, but the, superiority should last all season
1: yeah another just one one last stat before we move on from this i mentioned how how frequently boston was forcing opponents to play in isolation well they themselves are also isoing a ton at the offensive end they're doing it more than all but i think three teams in the league and they suck at it so far they're getting 0.74 points per possession out of isos which is only the pistons kings And Hawks, weirdly enough, have been worse. But all three of those teams are doing it less than half as often as Boston is. So, you know, if you want to look for some credence in what Marcus Smart is saying, then yeah, like having Brown and Tatum ISO as much as they have been has not been effective for the Celtics. And they probably need to find a way to get out of that.
0: In that Bulls game, okay, 46 percent of the Celtics possessions. I went and tracked 46 percent. And I'm not talking about 46 percent of the possessions when they were on the court. I mean, for the entire game. 46% Forty-six percent of Boston's possessions ended with Tatum or Brown as an individual possession. Like, a I, lot. I I know your stars in the NBA get the bulk, but that is a lot, man. That is a lot, especially when the results aren't there.
1: I feel like just also sometimes there's like not a lot of intentionality to the stuff that they run. Mm-hmm. Like I, I pointed this out, but there was this this pick and roll possession they ran. Uh, it was actually late in the third quarter of that game against the Bulls, where. Tatum uh, and Rob Williams ran a pick and roll and the Bulls blipped it, which is like, again, you know, if your lead creator can draw two to the ball, that's good. You have an advantage you can leverage. But then instead of diving to the rim, Williams goes and sets a pin down for Josh Richardson. And it's like, yo, know, the Bulls don't care about Josh Richardson popping open for a three like they just don't. And it's too bad because I used to really like Josh Richardson as a player and he's just not he's got this slow release. He hasn't shot the ball well. So it's like you're immediately negating the numbers advantage that you would have had because they can ignore that action. And now you're just letting the Bulls defend on the backside three on three instead of giving yourself a four on three, which you would have had if he just rolled to the basket.
0: Yeah. All right. You know who's been smarter about that stuff? Well, let's pick one of our next two teams. You wanna to go to our most surprising or you wanna to go to our most impressive?
1: Um why do we do most impressive? Let's right. let's that, talk Miami.
0: That's Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry's Miami Heat. Who you talk about the Bulls being legit. this team's legit. And I know you've got a piece coming out on their just absolutely dominant defense. And I wanna see the mic to you and have you talk about that. before I do it, yeah, I just wanna mention like in terms of how good this team has been uh jimmy butler look if they if we were giving out like early season awards he'd be in the running for mvp bam Adebayo would be perhaps the front runner for early season defensive player of the year kyle lowry has you know the numbers haven't necessarily uh been there his last couple games in pretty good numbers wise but the usual kyle lowry stuff if you watch the games you see the impact he has it and the, the defense he's playing which is probably the best D he's played in like two or three years at least he's been i think everything they want him to be tyler hero my preseason season sixth man of the year pick looks like the early season six man like this Great team pick. is good man we know what eric spolster is about as a coach like we, this team is built to win now and they are capable of doing it and they're showing it in the first couple weeks of the season and nowhere more so than on the defensive end. So Wolf, tell us what we need to know about this
1: absolutely ridiculous Heat defense. Well, I mean, I'll say off the top, like I expected their defense to be good, not necessarily as good as it's been, but the fact that they're second in offense right now is yeah. like very surprising to me. And a huge part of that, I think, is, is Lowry just completely changing the tempo, getting them into their early offense. I, I think John Schumann pointed out that He's thrown more hit ahead passes than any other player in the league so far this season, which won't be a surprise to, you know, any of our Toronto listeners. (laughs) That's what he does. He, he gets you out and running and uh, he loves to play with pace. And I think that's been a big help because look, Miami's half court offense can get sludgy at times. There's not a whole ton of shooting there. Um, I think last game actually was the first time we started to see his pick and roll craft really come to the fore. Like him and Adebayo looked really good in those two man actions but I think more than anything, it's just been him upping their pace, getting them into early offense. Um, hero, you mentioned, has been great. Like his pacing and his cadence have just been on a completely different level this year to where they were at last year.
0: Man, Tyler Hero is a really good player. And I feel like, like as is so typical with young players, so you know, he, he had that rookie year and he had the great uh, bubble and postseason as part of their run to the finals in his rookie year. And everyone kind of jumped on the hero bandwagon and then you had the people that thought like, no, he's getting way too much hype for just like this bubble thing. And then so when he had the down sophomore year, everyone that just thought like the bubble thing was a blip was like, yeah, see, like he was a fraud. He didn't do it. It was like, dude, he's in his second year, like relax. And I think now you're starting to see, and look again, like maybe he's not this good the entire year for his career, but he's a really good young player who has shown signs of getting better and kind of like taking lessons from his first couple of years and applying them to the player he is now and if he just keeps going on that trajectory like i think you and i both thought he had all-star potential after that rookie season i still believe that and i think this year reinforces it more i'm not saying this year but in general for his career like this this guy has all-star talent and he's showing it
1: yeah just another good reminder that development isn't always linear and uh these guys can sometimes take winding roads to get to where they're going to get to being the kind of players that they're ultimately going to become so He's looked great. But yeah, let's talk about their defense. They're tops in the league right now, 97.9 points per hundred possessions allowed. Last year's league-best Lakers, as we've mentioned before, uh, allowed 106.8 points per hundred. And look, we have talked also about the league's offensive downturn, where, you know, just an illustration of that is the Sixers this season have the exact same defensive rating as the Lakers did last year and and this year they're 15th like that's where the Sixers are with the exact same defensive rating that would have led the league last year so the offensive environment has obviously changed a little bit but a 98 defensive rating in this day and age is still pretty absurd it's uh it's been six years since any team finished sub 100 and I don't think the Heat are going to finish sub 100 there's some unsustainable stuff that's helping to power that which we can get into but Let's start by focusing on the sustainable stuff. I'll say, obviously, there are great individual defenders on this team. You know, Jimmy, Bam, P.J. Tucker, Lowry in his own way. Um, But I, I think what has really powered their success is just how they're defending as a unit. Like, they don't mess up their rotations. They X out beautifully. Like, they cover for each other and help the helper. It's really rare that you'll see a communication breakdown or confusion where two guys are rotating to the same spot. It's a real hive mind where you watch the defense and it's like they all sort of share one brain. And um, look, they, they switch a ton. Like that's kind of the their base scheme is just the switch. And, you know, certainly over the past few years, there's been this kind of like groundswell of sentiment that that's what all defenses should sort of strive to do is just to be able to switch everything. And I think it's very often just not the panacea that everybody expects it to be. But the reason it works so well for Miami is just there's like very rarely any kind of advantage to leverage on either end of their switches, right? Like you're a guard and you want to go at Bam bio on a switch. Like that's not going to work out particularly well for you. Like you're a big man or or a big wing that wants to try and overpower PJ Tucker or Jimmy Butler or Kyle Lowry like that's not going to go particularly well for you either I will say okay go
0: ahead
1: no well I was just going to say like the other thing that that switching defenses often give up is like they they tend to give up a lot of offensive rebounds because they'll switch themselves into some bad matchups underneath the basket they're number one in defensive rebound rate so it's like they're doing all this switching and they're getting all the upsides which is just flattening everything out really eliminating like north south action and downhill penetration and they're getting like none of the downsides right now
0: yeah the thing i was gonna say even when you were mentioning like you know big wings thinking they might have an advantage like they just don't against any of those guys and i know look like especially if you look at the numbers like they're doing things right they're getting it done so i know it's not even like they actually are fouling a lot but when i was like going into the year when i wrote one of our unfiltered episodes about uh this heat team and like their ceilings their upside their weaknesses and uh for like the kind of comedic uh, sound up that we used. And, and I thought like was a good microcosm of how I see this, like just the meanness of this heat defense this year. I picked the clip from he got game when Denzel, when like it's still like young Ray, like Ray Allen's not playing him yet. He's still like a kid. Jesus Shuttlesworth is still a kid. And Denzel's like bullying him on the playground and is literally just like two hand, like picking him up and throwing him on the ground. And then like little Jesus Shuttlesworth is like crying for a foul. And Denzel's just going like, yeah, it's a foul. That's no problem. It's a foul. Like you can have that. And that's like, that's how I pictured this heat defense this year being like, they're just going to bully you. And, and again, that's not a fair assessment because they're actually good. It's not like, just like they're beating you up, but they also are very capable of just beating you up. And, and I just think, um, yeah, it, it's funny to think about because they are, they're, it's funny for us, but hundred percent not funny if you're actually an NBA team that has to play these guys because they're mean, but they're also good at it. You know what I mean? They don't have to yeah. be mean. They can just beat
1: you with their ability. I, I will say, I don't know that there's another team that has benefited more from the relaxed rules on shooting fouls than they have. Like perhaps, they take the Raptors, perhaps the Raptors on, maybe
0: not on the, the shooting step, but the one thing I will say about the Raptors, like whether you look at a Gary Trent, um, who's been a defensive revelation this year in general, those guys. They are a very handsy aggressive team at the point of attack. And even though that's not part of the like points of emphasis this year with officiating, as many players will tell you early in the season, it seems like they're letting the refs are letting more go than just the shooting fouls. And mm-hmm. I do think a team like the Raptors has benefited from that because they have been able to, I th- I think, be more aggressive on the perimeter than they would have been in past years, or maybe then they'll be allowed to be in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But I agree with you that the heat have probably benefited from most from the shooting fouls, the stuff that's actually the point of emphasis, but in terms of the overall officiating change so far this year, I also think the the handsy aggressive on the perimeter Raptors have benefited as well.
1: Yeah. I think that's, I mean, especially just because of like, they had nowhere to go, but down anyway, because of (laughs) the extent to which they were fouling people last year, but you know, regarding the heat, look, they, they have a couple defensive minuses in their rotation and that's, robinson and hero and honestly I, I like i might push back on calling robinson a minus at this point He's smart, But smart i'd say it's it's fair to say those guys aren't good on ball defenders just the lateral speed the strength um in hero's case the length like they just don't have enough of that to be like really disruptive to opposing ball handlers And Robinson's actually pretty foul-prone, to your point, Um, maybe because he's compensating for the missing physical tools. He fouled out of last night's game against Dallas. But uh, I I would say both of those guys, and Robinson especially, have become pretty solid team defenders, where at the very least, they know where to be. They're in the right places at the right times. They're not going to trigger breakdowns with blown assignments. And and more than that, I just think because of how well-insulated they are, you know, first of all, they're going to be hiding on the worst opposing offensive players. And even if they get hunted in screening actions, like the Heat are still giving that switch most of the time, like they're, they're allowing Robinson to switch on to like, you know, whoever is like the opposing team's lead creator, who's hunting that switch out and, and trying to mismatch hunt that way. And, and I, you know, to be fair, I think they should probably do that less. Like they soft switch more than I think they ought to, but they're solid enough everywhere else that they can help those guys out with double teams uh, or just extra strong side bodies after they give up the switch. And they can trust that they can zone up and rotate behind that help to just negate whatever advantage they give up. And you kind of go through it and there are like, not that many ways in which you can attack their defense, you know, because of how, how able they are to, to to put out those fires on the back end when they're bringing extra help. Obviously, you know, one counter to switching is to slip screens, which we've seen some teams do against them. But then like their guards and wings are also so good at tagging from the weak side and then recovering out to shooters. So even that like hasn't borne a ton of fruit and transition is like, again, Usually, you think of there being this correlation between like punting on the offensive glass and having good transition defense because everyone's running back. The Heat are fourth in the league in offensive rebound rate, and their transition defense is still ridiculous. Like, they still get back and match up so quickly. And it's not like there's some secret sauce to that, right? Like, they just bust it back and communicate really effectively and make sure they're ma- matched up properly. Um, so it's just like across the board, they've been very, very solid. But uh, I don't, is there anything else that you've seen that's really jumped out to you for them at either end of the floor?
0: No, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. And I do think, I, I think as you mentioned in their last game, it was the first time you really started seeing the the pick and roll prowess of Lowry starting to come out with a team, and especially for Bam. And that's something we both talked about coming into the year. It's something I met, I talked about in that unfiltered episode I mentioned before the season started where it's like, In addition to him pushing the ball and pushing the pace and helping them that way, the way Kyle Lowry's greatest value to this offense, especially I think when the games come to a halt, like grind to a halt and in the postseason is going to be his ability to give them a pick and roll dynamic that they really just didn't have last year, even the last couple of years, to be honest with you. And I think he's going to help unlock Bam's game offensively in that way and and make him a more dangerous player offensively as like a roller and around the rim but more so he's gonna like just diversify their offense in that way because they didn't have that right they didn't have that north south kind of ability to really pick an opposing defense apart and you need to be able to do that in the playoffs obviously just like you need an individual shot creator like Jimmy Butler and all that other stuff and the shooters like Duncan Robinson or Tyler here you need you need a diversified offense to win in the NBA nowadays and I think the one thing that I would say on the on the offensive end, since you covered the defensive end, is I'm really encouraged by the signs that we saw from Lowry and Bam in their last game because it was the first game we saw it, but there's going to be plenty more
1: of that, and especially when the games matter. Um, okay, so yeah, the, the one thing I'll say before we move on from this topic is the Heat give up a ton of threes. Uh, higher proportion of opponent shots... Are coming from beyond the arc against them than against any other team and on the other end of that they have the lowest opponent rim frequency in the league and that's like very much by design right because i think one of their big defensive weaknesses one of their few defensive weaknesses is rim protection like as good as bam is as a switch defender he's still undersized as a center and it's not like they have secondary rim protection right like six foot five pj tucker is their primary power forward and, and Butler's playing a lot of four or Markeith Morris is playing the four. Um, and, and like Dwayne Dedman has actually been really good and, and he's like an okay rim protector. So they're essentially allowing their perimeter defense to be their interior defense and to just prevent guys from getting to the rim in the first place. And that looks great right now because their opponents are shooting 31% from three and 16% on long twos. So, Definitely some regression is coming in those areas where, like, once opponents start hitting more of their jump shots, which they will, their scheme is not going to look quite as airtight as it does right now. But I think because they want to protect their interior defense as much as they can, which is, I think, as far as opponents shooting at the rim is like eighth worst in the league right now, they're going to keep trying to force opponents out to the perimeter and force them to take jump shots. And that's going to be their bet, which, you know, we saw Milwaukee basically use that gambit to pretty solid effect in years past. um, And we'll see if it works for Miami.
0: All right. Before we get to the impressive rookies, um, let's talk about our most surprising team. And I think there was a few candidates, but it's got to be the Washington Wizards who I don't think either of us saw being good, maybe competitive. I didn't even have them in that six to 10 mix when we talked about it. I had them 11th or maybe even 12th after Charlotte and uh, it's tough to argue with how good they've been through the first couple of weeks. Like Bradley Beal hasn't even really been good yet. Like he's shooting terribly. He's committing a ton of turnovers. Um, so far, the Wizards have actually been a couple points per one possessions worse when he's been on the court. He seems to be one of the players uh, so far most affected by the change in officiating. We'll see how that goes as the season continues. I feel like he's going to figure it out. Um, but the guys they got for Russell Westbrook, you know, Montrez Harrell, Kyle Kuzma, Contavious Caldwell-Pope have been great for them. Uh, Kuzma has just been like a solid two-way player, which is what he's been for like the last couple of years and kind of quietly so without people necessarily giving him that recognition, especially on the defensive end. Um, KCP, Contavious, Mana from Heaven, Caldwell-Pope uh, has just been shooting the lights out. And then Montrez Harrell, you know, for as much as we know his pick and roll defense gets picked apart and and for the the various reasons he's maybe not the greatest playoff performer the guy feasts in the regular season and he's feasting like he's never feasted before right now like the guy is absolutely beasting and bullying people inside he seems like it's he's finishing everything inside and around the rim and if he's not finishing it it seems like he's grabbing every offensive rebound i think He's grabbing right now like 11% of available offensive rebounds when he's on the court, which is like a, almost a top 10 mark. And one of the only guys in the league who's been better than him is teammate Daniel Gafford so far, who's grabbing like 14% of available. So like the Wizards are just doing a lot right. Again, has
1: also been incredible on the glass. Yeah, I think he's, he's averaging 11 himself boards into a, a game. Better.
0: Yeah, he's averaging 11 boards a game. So again, this is all like, yeah, some of this stuff will regress, but Bradley Beal is also going to be a lot better. So... We can get into the Wizards and, and them being the most impressive team, but the question I want to ask you, and it's kind of the reverse of what I asked about the Celtics, and here's what I'll actually preface this by saying, you know, I, I mentioned the reason the Celtics start might come back to bite them is because they're they're losing these early season games to teams that they're probably going to be jostling with in that 6-10 to 10 range. Well, the Wizards are the flip side of that. Like, Two of their wins have come against Boston. One of their wins has come against Toronto in Toronto. One of their wins has come against Indiana, who I know is crap in the bed right now, but I still think could be in that mix. The Wizards are banking early season wins against those teams while the Celtics are dropping them. And and like I said, yeah, some of the stuff's going to regress, but Beal will be better. So just like I asked you, if you know, what you've seen through the first two weeks of the season has convinced you one way or the other with the Celtics. I'll ask you the same thing about the Wizards. Neither one of us even had them in the play-in mix. Mm -hmm. Have you seen enough from the Wizards early in the season to at least say, you know, I'm not sure there'll be a playoff team, but this team will be playing a play-in game
1: at least? I don't know if I'm quite ready to go there yet. I would say I mentioned on an episode last year, basically that no team has ever regretted trading for Chris Paul. I would say Russell Westbrook, sorry, late career Russell Westbrook, because the guy has still had a fantastic, you know, Hall of Fame career, but late career Westbrook, no one has ever regretted trading him. He's like the anti Chris Paul in that way. Like even the Rockets who had to eat John Wall's even worse contract to make that trade. I mean, they still got a first round pick out of that deal. I don't think they're sitting there sweating having traded Russ. So the post Westbrook Wizards are thriving. And you mentioned the guys they got in that trade have all been awesome. Uh, Kuzma just like continues to improve as a defender. I'm like, like, I'm just really impressed with him at this point as an overall player. As a scorer, like he's what he is at this point but he's a solid player. Harrell is absolutely destroying opposing bench units, just tearing them limb from limb. And KCP, his point of attack defense has been a game changer, man. You know, you know which team is allowing the lowest rate of opponent three point attempts, the Washington wizards and, and KCP, I think has been probably the biggest driver of that. Like his ability to pursue over screens, to chase guys off of the arc. Um, I think that's been huge for them. And, I don't. I don't know that their defense feels totally unsustainable to me. They're what are they now? They're they're eleventh in the league in defensive rating. So I don't know. They could maybe slip a few rungs from that, but like I I don't think it's out of the question at all that they wind up in the top half, which is certainly a far cry from where they've been the last few years. And you mentioned like Beal has shot the ball terribly. I think that's going to change. So yeah, this I, I I do feel like this looks. To me, like a 500 team at worst, maybe, and a team that could, I don't know, I don't know how high they can realistically climb, I guess. I I feel like the ceiling is still pretty low, but they've established a a high floor because I do think the defense is more or less for real, especially because I think what's really hurt them so far is opponents are shooting 70% against them in the restricted area. Um, And that's been compounded by the fact that in conjunction with running teams off of the three point line, like they're actually allowing a very high rim frequency. So that's been a bad combination, like high rim frequency and team shooting 70% in the restricted area. And I don't think they're that bad a rim protecting team. Like I think Gafford's actually a good rim protector, at least to the naked eye. Um, It just looks like a completely different unit than it has in the past, right? Like there are not defensive minuses all over the floor. And... Offensively, it just obviously their pace is way down, as one would expect when Russell Westbrook goes out the door. But in the half court, they look so much crisper and more fluid to me. Like I think also three point attempt rate, like their their three point volume was a big issue for them last season. And trading Westbrook for KCP Kuzma, and then I guess they didn't really get Dinwiddie in that deal, or did they? As part of the sign and trade, I don't know how. Mm, that's a good question. Don't remember, but basically Dinwiddie, KCP and Kuzma are like three of their top four guys in terms of three point volume. So like getting those three guys in exchange for Westbrook has really improved that situation. It just looks like a way better built team. And I don't know how high they can get. Like, I don't necessarily see them escaping the play in like they're I don't think they're finishing right. in the top six. But yeah, not like I'm kind of talking myself into them being at worst a, a play in team.
0: Yeah, who would you think they'd be replacing out of our original ten? Would it be the Pacers? I, I mean, that'd Whoa. be the obvious answer because they're two and six right now. But
1: mm-hmm. that's
0: probably the way I'd lean.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely the easiest call.
0: So but also yeah, shout out Wes Unseld Jr. Man, like I know it's hard to, um, you know, assign proper credit or blame to coaches, and especially early in the season, and he's a new coach. But I would like people have talked about Wes and Wes Unsell Jr as a kind of future head coach in the league and a guy who deserves a shot for a long time. And, you know, to his credit, he's getting that shot now and he's making the most of it early in the season and has this team playing really well on both ends. And, you know, as I mentioned in the past, it is just also a great story with the son of probably the greatest player in franchise history, who also, unfortunately, like recently passed away, taking over the team and maybe helping turn the franchise around. Obviously early to say anything like that, but it's at least just been a good story so far, and I'm happy to see it.
1: Yeah, man. And and he was sort of waiting in the wings for a long time, too, mm-hmm. right? Like every offseason at the front of the line, like the assistant coach that everyone thought was going to get his chance. And it took a while, but he finally did. And I'm glad to see him making the most of it.
0: All right, let's take the break and come back and talk about the greatest rookie class of all time. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, last segment of the show. The rookie class that I joked before the break is the greatest of all time. Some obvious uh, pandering there to certain fans of certain fan bases, but they've been pretty damn good and insanely impressive to the first couple weeks of the season. I mean, there's a handful of guys we can talk about Scotty Barnes, Evan Mobley, more so than anyone else. Where do you want to start here? Uh, Why don't we start with Mobley? All right. Well, just a defensive terror. Like, (laughs) the guy's been defensively terrifying to watch and to play against for opponents. Um, I think when I checked that last over the weekend, he had better rim protection numbers than Joel Embiid and Miles Turner. And if you watch him, you also know that he's got the mobility at seven feet to hound players on switches in the perimeter in space like defensively the guy seems to have it all and you combine that with jared allen in the front court and it's like holy hell is it tough to get inside let alone score inside on those guys so yeah that i mean my early impressions of evan mobley is like the guy can be a, a transcendent defensive player he's that good
1: yeah right now he's allowing 53.4 percent field goal percentage at the rim which is Good for anyone, and especially for a rookie big man. And I think what's stood out to me is just he already understands how to let his length do most of the work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that can be him like playing between two guys in drop coverage, contesting shots without fouling or without jumping too early. And that might seem easy when you have a seven foot four wingspan, but it takes most young bigs a while to really figure that out. Sometimes, especially the toolsiest ones because they're the ones who are sort of most over eager, like most hungry to block shots and often most willing to gamble themselves out of position. And Mobley just doesn't do that, right? Like, DeAndre Ayton, this I feel like he's a good point of comparison because it took him a couple years to really understand how to calm everything down and economize his movement and just let his size do the talking. And once he was able to figure that out, like he became a game-changing defender. And I feel like Mobley's sort of already there; like he already recognizes how to do it. The, the big thing for him is just like he got he's, he's got to fill out his frame and get stronger. But as far as just like his defensive feel his footwork, like all of that is like high level already. And that's to say nothing of of what he's capable of at the offensive end. Right. Like he's a really fluid offensive player who can score or just be used in a variety of different ways. You know, in the post, in the pick and roll, like he's got a bit of a face up game. Haven't really seen him stretch it out to three yet, but I think ultimately that's going to be part of his toolkit as well. Just most exciting big man prospect since Carl Towns, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's not an unfair thing to say. He's been yeah. pretty damn good. I don't um, know. Do you, do you count Zion as a big, I guess? That would, that would be the only other one that I can think of. Who's...
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess. I do count him as a big, um, but kind of depressing to have to talk about <laughs> Zion right now. So let's talk about Yeah, I was going right. to say,
1: actually, we we, we we cited the Celtics as our most disappointing team. Definitely could have picked the Pelicans there, yeah. but I think it's just not that interesting to talk about because yeah, and there's one know. reason that they've been that disappointing. So. Right, and and also like to be
0: honest, I, obviously I didn't think they'd be this bad. But if you remember, even when we were talking those, like preseason stuff, I,
1: I I thought they'd be bad. Like I had the behind the Timberwolves. Um, Yo, Nikhil Alexander Walker has not uh, not taken the step forward that no, no he has not.
0: But maybe he will over the next uh, 75 games or so. All right. uh, You talk about Mobley being one of the most exciting big men prospects in some time. Scotty Barnes looks like one of the most exciting, I don't know what you want, point forward, big forward, wing players, you know, of the last few years. The guy, defensively, we knew the chops. And look, even defensively, I think on ball, he can get better and he will get better but love his defensive activity, love his alertness, his attentiveness. He seems to just with that length, get his hands on everything, whether we're talking like deflections or even on the glass. Like there's so many rebounds where he may not end up with them. And maybe the Raptors don't even end up with them. But I swear when he's on the floor, it feels like he's at least getting a hand on every loose ball, rebound, whatever. But obviously the revelation here has been on the offensive end where he's averaging roughly 18 points on an effective field goal percentage of 56 plus the threes aren't there yet, but he's shooting like better than 58% from two point range. And it's not just that they're going in. It's like the way he's going about it. It just looks clinical. It looks like he does this in his sleep. His release looks really smooth. Like he's, he's getting to his spots and just very calmly and confidently rising up and knocking down jumpers, short jumpers. He also You know, there's been some games where it looks like he's almost unstoppable getting to the rim. And then his second jump is unbelievable. So sometimes he will miss around the rim and then he just beats three guys to the ball, whether because of muscle or because of that second jump puts the offensive rebound back his playmaking. Like it's the stuff of highlights and some of it is a little risky and yeah, maybe it'll end up in some turnovers as the year goes on. But we know the playmaking vision and ability is there. You just start like adding all these things together and considering that, you know, like, uh, a big forward who was supposed to have offensive challenges, but rookies in general, like, are not supposed to be, forget the numbers, they're not supposed to be as impactful as Scotty Barnes has been through his first two weeks of an NBA career. And so, obviously, as a couple guys sitting here in Toronto who, you know, grew up Raptors fans, it's very exciting. But in general, if you're a basketball fan, the tantalizing potential here and the ceiling here on both ends is really really exciting like this guy has special special stuff and i tweeted this uh, after he took off from just inside the free throw line for a huge dunk last wednesday i think against the pacers maybe i don't even remember who was against maybe the magic to cap a kind of defensive rebound and fast like one man fast break but he you can't quantify the it factor but scotty barnes has an abundance of it Eat your heart out, Paul Pierce.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, look, I the thing that's been so surprising to me is I think his offense is ahead of his defense right now. And that's that goes to both ends of the floor. Like, I, Not that his defense has been disappointing. I do think for a rookie it's been exceptional. But while the defensive potential is sky high and he's certainly capable of making big, loud impact plays, You know, especially that like that's as a helper, mostly playing in the gaps, right? I I think he's still kind of mistake prone and the on-ball defense still has a lot of holes. Like he's flat-footed a lot. His closeouts are not controlled. He struggles with screen navigation. All that can and I think will get better. But offensively, man, like first of all, he's finishing everything around the basket. Uh, He's all over the offensive glass. And just the mid-range game, like it has been so much better than... I Think anyone could have anticipated outside of maybe him and whatever <laughs> trainers or development coaches he worked with during the offseason because, like, he, that wasn't supposed to be part of his game at all. And not only is he like hitting jumpers out of the short roll, but he's dribbling himself into mid range pull ups confidently, and you know, he's hitting push shots like he's got the Raptors basically one of the most floater range averse teams of the last few years up until like the top 10 in short mid-range frequency and accuracy um so th- that's just been really impressive um and also like I, I like the post game a- another thing like the fact that he can handle the ball he can dribble himself into post-ups and we saw him do that against Demonta Sabonis uh a couple of games ago I guess against the Pacers like he did that a couple times and it's like Okay, so bonus isn't you know an all world defender or anything like that, but that's a strong dude. Like it's not easy to dribble yourself in a deep post position against that guy and then score over top of him. and Scotty Barnes did it and made it look easy. and then I think you know one one of the ways the Raptors have used him is kind of like as a handoff hub, and those fake handoff keeper plays have sprung him a couple of times for some pretty powerful drives and dunks the the I guess the passing, which was sort of like one of the big selling points for him on, on offense. Like it's really popped in transition, but not so much in the half court.
0: Yeah. I think that's fair to say. And like I said, I think even in transition, some of the pat like it's, it's highlight fodder, some of them are a little risky and I don't know if they're going to work all year, but I mean, in the half court, I think it's tougher to see. Well, I still think, yeah, I, I think tough. the vision is there. I think the, like, I think you mm-hmm. can see the vision and like, he processes the game really quickly and really well and so i'm not necessarily concerned about it in in the half quarter in general but i do think there might be some growing pains with the playmaking coming that we haven't seen yet and people will
1: have to be patient with that yeah well i mean he's still averaging more turnovers than assists so i think we've we've seen some Start, of those yeah. growing pains already and probably like the reason we haven't seen it pop in the half quarter to the same extent is that the handle is very much still a work in progress right like the fact that he can't just like get himself to any spot on the floor in the half court, like can't really like make multi dribble combination moves to get by people makes it tough for him to like open up those passing lanes for himself. All right. Josh Giddy, individual offense is
0: kind of a work in progress. Hasn't been that efficient, but as a big six, eight do it all playmaker, I'm loving what I'm seeing Uh, roughly averaging about 11 points, six boards, six assists and a steal. Uh, He's surprised me defensively, and he looks like the perfect complement to SGA so far. I don't think the Thunder could have asked for much more than what they're getting from Giddy, and they're still losing games, so everything's, <laughs> coming, exactly up. everything's coming up Presty. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, the passing field definitely pops. Uh, I feel like his mid-range and floater game have been more effective than I would have expected. I, I just... As much as it's obvious watching him how well he feels the game, do you not feel like, I I don't know, I'm just sort of not sure how he does it sometimes because (laughs) he's not very explosive. His handle is fine. It's nothing special, but he does seem to have this knack for just getting where he wants to go for making it work. I'm not. Entire like I'm not entirely sure how like th- there was a possession toward the end of that game against the Clippers where he was isoed on Paul George and just made one like very basic hesitation move and then dusted him off the dribble and got to the rim for a layup and I was like I- how did that happen like I I know he he gets nice and low on those drives and there's definitely a certain athleticism required to get into and out of that crouch but. Sometimes I watch him and, and like as, as well as he clearly feels the game on a purely physical level, he doesn't really look like a, an NBA player or at least not an NBA player with this sky high ceiling. So, yeah, but, you know, to that end, like he, he is making it work.
0: And I think like he's only going to get better. So the fact that with some of the challenges and limitations, it seems like he has, he's still, for whatever reason, making it work, I think is a very good sign early. Chris Duarte, I mentioned on last week's show, just he's an old rookie at 24, went 13th in the draft, has been great for the Pacers so far. He's averaging like 18 points a game. He's shooting the piss out of the ball. Uh, Don't really have much more to say about him. Like I said, we already did mention him last week. I did want to mention Franz Wagner in Orlando because he maybe has been the most surprising rookie to me. He's been awesome. Uh, He's averaging about 16 points on 61% true shooting which usually like if a rookie through five to ten games is averaging like 16 points on that kind of efficiency no matter how good or bad his team is you'd be like well that's you know keep an eye on him in in the early rookie of the year uh race and this rookie class has been so good that franz wagner is putting up those numbers his first two weeks in the nba and i'm not even sure he's been one of the five best
1: rookies like that's how good this rookie class has been so far i think he's been one of the five best rookies
0: Yeah, I mean, Mobley, Barnes.
1: I I might be third.
0: Yeah, I think he's three to five. But he's not even, he's definitely not, again, it's it's silly because we're talking about rookie of the year. It's two weeks in, but I'm saying like if just the numbers he's putting up, you'd usually be like early season. Wow, rookie of the year guy to watch. And like Mm -hmm. Barnes and Mobley especially have been so good that he's not even on that stratosphere. And then there are like a few other guys, I think, at least matching him productivity wise. So it's just kind of crazy that even a guy like him is somewhat being lost in the shuffle when in most years this early season performance from a rookie would be like
1: eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely been the best rookie on the Magic, which probably a lot of people wouldn't expect it coming into the season, but he can really shoot the ball. Mm -hmm. And he's got some pop off the dribble. Like right now, it's a lot of just off the catch stuff and and attacking closeouts. But hell, for for a first-year wing, like, That's all you could really ask for, right? A guy who shoots it that well and can really attack a closeout and really knows how to relocate and cut and play without the ball and defensively has been honestly very solid. Again, like with him, I think it's it's like the off-ball defense that has been impressive and on-ball, it's maybe going to take a little bit more time. But another guy who I just think has great feel for the game and... You combine that with what is already like a really strong base skill set to build from. And I think the Magic have a lot to be excited about, man. Like they they're kind of the shorthand for boring, moribund NBA teams. And I do think, you know, when all said and done, there's a pretty good chance that they'll be well, the Thunder are gonna be tough to beat, but like they're gonna be one of the worst teams in the league this season. They kind of have a lot going on there. Cole man, Anthony, like Cole, awesome. Cole Anthony looks so good. Mobamba, baby. Mobamba has has definitely played his best basketball. Okiki just came back. He's struggled a bit coming back, but like we talked about him before the season started, I'm really high on him. You know, at some point, Fultz and Jonathan Isaac are going to come back into the fold. Like there's definitely a little something cooking in Orlando. And it might take a few years for it to really come to fruition, but I feel like suddenly they have a pretty exciting future. Yeah. And Uh, Suggs will be better, obviously. Yeah, 100%. And and you
0: know, so will Jalen Green and Cade cutting him, who went dude Jalen Green, man. <laughs> Did you see
1: that <sighs> the when he took A D off the dribble at the top? That, that step back, talking? like yeah. it's man. It's, it's ruthless. And first and of all, like like creating creating that much separation against A D, you know, just going one on one against him. Stepping back like I don't know how far he was behind the three point line, but like it took all his strength to get that ball to the rim. And that was a moon ball that went like 30 feet in the air before dropping through. Like that was an absolutely ridiculous shot.
0: Yeah, man. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like think of the rookie performances we've already talked about. And we haven't even talked about really like the guys who came in considered the top three in Cade, Green and Suggs. And, you know, Kaminga, who is a project I know, but still has some pretty tantalizing upside. Hasn't even played yet. Like this rookie class really can be special. Green, look, he's been inefficient so far, but, I don't want him to get like lost because or like people to think away about him because the rest of the class has kind of been ahead of schedule. Like the guy's got insane upside, especially as a scorer. Most rookies, especially rookie scorers, are insanely inefficient. Like I wouldn't necessarily worry about that too much so far. Cade, I get the concerns. Like he he had this ankle injury. No one really knew what was going on. He started behind everyone else. His first two games have been awful. None of that really concerns me. I think you'll figure it out. I'm a big believer in Cade. The only thing I'd say that concerns me, and it's not necessarily anything with his productivity yet, is the fact that uh, Dwayne Casey mentioned in the preseason that they're working on changing his shot mechanics a little bit and getting him to release the ball higher on his three-point shot. Yeah, which is like, look, obviously neither one of us are coaches or development coaches or anything like that, but I don't know, like sometimes I look at it and I feel like it's simpler than those professionals actually make it out to be and it's like this guy scored and shot pretty damn well as a prospect and was considered a franchise changing prospect for a reason not really sure if you want to be tinkering with his mechanics and if you've watched any of the first couple games with Cade and you compare his jumper to what it was in like pre-NBA highlights and and uh, YouTube packages and all that like it is a little different and I'm not sure it's better so Forget the productivity, forget the ankle injury. My one concern with Cade right now is why the Pistons are tinkering with that shot at all. But I guess maybe that's for another day.
1: Yeah, I feel like, like if a guy comes in with a shot that is clearly broken and you hear sure. that a team is trying to rework his mechanics, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. But then, I don't know, I'm struggling to think of an instance in which some guy came into the league with like a dynamite jump shot and then reworked his mechanics and it worked yeah. out really well. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully it works for Cade because the uh, first couple games. Uh, yeah, I, he's over for 14 from three so far. Yeah, well, and, um,
0: and Casey specifically cited his three-point shot. Like, he didn't just say on his jumpers. He specifically cited we're working on um, getting uh, his release point higher on his three-point shot.
1: And, yeah, well, do you think he just, like, came into camp and was just getting blocked on all his threes and they decided uh, they had to change something? Or Yeah, that's possible, but, I mean, I hope. I hope the results start coming because
0: especially for a young player, like, yeah, I also don't want him like giving up on, you know, the, the new things they're trying to work on. And then there might be like tension between doing the old thing and the new thing, and it could get messy quickly. So hopefully that's not the case, but uh, do, do you have any other thoughts here on? Well, to your shot point about green, or anything
1: else we talked about? No, I'll just say to your point about Jalen green, like I know the numbers haven't been great. Um, he's been a bit of a mess, bit of a turnover machine showing, All the signs of being an inexperienced player who's being asked to, you know, frankly do a lot with the ball in his hands, which guys like, you know, other guys we mentioned like Franz Wagner and, and even Scotty Barnes are not being asked to do. And I think that's just bound to create some hiccups and some inefficiencies, but like, man, is that dude explosive off the bounce? Like his first step is crazy. And he's not finishing particularly effectively right now, but I'm not like worried long-term about him being a poor finisher. No. And I think he's just going to be able to get to the rim and to the free throw line a whole bunch with his speed, his first step. Yeah. I'm excited to watch him grow. Cause I do think he's going to really round out his game. Like his pick and roll passing is probably better than I expected it to be. I don't think it's going to be, I don't think he's just going to be some one dimensional scorer. You know, I think he has a chance to be a pretty well-rounded offensive player. And then Davion Mitchell is the only other guy that I would mention. Uh, off night, name, like, yeah, off night. I don't know. It's a. I feel like th- that nickname's getting like too much hype, and it's and it's turning me off a little bit. It's a it great nickname, nickname, man. But it's, it's a like, great
0: nickname. Like you're saying, because he's not yet good enough defensively to like to deserve no, it. He is actually good enough defensively to deserve well, what's it. What's the problem like, with the nickname? That's a great nickname. Off it night is a great cause, nickname because whoever you're like, guarding you're... is going to have an off night. <laughs> I, like, understand. No, I understand. No, I know the you Purpose do. of the nickname? I I, I I know you do, but I was just spelling it out in case you know the, some of our listeners uh, might not be the biggest Kings fans or watch Kings ball and might not know about it. So,
1: I just feel like know. people go out of their way to bring up the fact that that is his nickname to the because point it's that I'm great. like, okay, we get it. But yeah, I I did want to say you when we wrote that column, like ten observations from the first ten days of the season, you mentioned that you felt like Scotty. And Mobley, we're going to potentially have a case to be in the all defense conversation, which would be, I think, yeah, um, Mobley
0: more so given the first couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, I don't I, I think Barnes is still pretty far away, Mobley closer, but I think if I think Davion Mitchell has a, a better case than either of them to be in the all defense conversation because I mean, that dude is so hard to shake, so hard to screen, has really just like great instincts and great hands where he can pressure the ball. He can get into your airspace. He can knock the ball loose or just straight up, take it away from you. And he's able to do all that, like without fouling a whole bunch. And that is something that usually takes players a long, long time to figure out, but he's already there and he's already taking like the toughest perimeter assignments every single night for what I think has a chance to be a pretty good Kings team. Like I've I've very much liked what I have seen from them so far. And I especially think that they look way more locked in, focused, energetic at the defensive end of the floor than they have in the past few seasons. And he's a huge part of that. So the offense is gonna take a while to come for him, but yeah, he, he had a good offensive game last night, actually, where he showed a bit of off the dribble pop and a couple of step back threes, like able to get into the paint. So maybe not that far away at the offensive end, but it almost doesn't even matter because the defense is so, so good. Yeah. And one of the best nicknames in recent years. <laughs> um,
0: no off nights here, though, at Pound the Rock, Joe. Never an off night or Never. an off day or an off episode. And I think we can wrap up episode 203 with that. And I will tease that all things go well. Could be a special guest for episode 204 next week. Uh, I also like that. I mean, no one can see it because we're on video, but I do like that you uh, you looked surprised as if you don't know like you looked as if like oh who could it be i'm excited even though, yeah even though we both know um but uh all right that's for next week this about does it for this week i will uh throw in fan shout out this week we've done it a couple times where we do like an industry fan shout out. i did want to shout out um oren weisfeld who uh does some writing at complex who i actually met at the uh raptors home opener a couple weeks ago who when he introduced himself did mention that he likes the pod. So I wanted to shout Orin out who is a good young writer. So uh, that's this week's fan shout out Reminder to everyone listening. And we do uh, see the numbers going up in terms of our audience lately. So I will say there are definitely a lot of you out there that we don't know about from a personal standpoint. So let us know who you are. Give us a shout on social media, on Twitter, via email, Instagram, Um, however you want to find us and let us know how long you've been a fan of the show, where you're listening from, and we will get you a
1: shout out. I I just want to say one thing, which is that I'm not just saying this because we talked about the wizards on this episode. I I was going through, I was going through some of our listener data over the weekend and noticed that in the last month or so, we've had a huge uptick in listeners from the Washington DC area. And I have no idea why that has happened. So I think we'd love to know if you are one of those DC area listeners who has suddenly started listening to the pod, reach out and let us know what prompted you to suddenly start listening because I'm, I'm at a loss. I'm struggling to explain uh, that trend.
0: Yeah. And I would recommend that any of our new <laughs> yeah. Washington DC area <laughs> listeners, please Please find our old episodes where I went on one of my many, many Ernie Grunfeld rants. Because I promise you, unless your last name is Grunfeld, that you will very much enjoy those episodes. And I, it, my heart weeps for you for the fact that you, as a new listener of Pound the Rock, might not have heard those, if I may say so myself, great rants related to Ernie Grunfeld's managerial incompetence.
1: Yeah, this man used to come into the studio with a hot cup of tea with honey and lemon in it in preparation of a Grunfeld-centric episode. So yeah, they were the real deal. But no, I'm, I'm legitimately curious where all these new Washington listeners have come from. So uh, hit us up. Let us know what's going on. Why is it happening?
0: Please do. With that, for Joe on, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.